We are going to pick up in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Luke 3, 1 through 20. Um, that's on the right-hand side of your Bible. This is the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Big number three, and we're going to start at verse 1. We're going to consider that the king is coming. Luke 3, 1 through 20. Listen along as I read from God's word. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be made low and the crooked will become straight. The rough ways smooth and everyone will see the salvation of God. He, that's John, then said to the crowds who had come to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Now the people were waiting expectantly and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help. Thank you, God, for your word. Would you please open our ears to hear Jesus loud and clear? Would you strengthen our hearts to trust him? And would you strengthen our hands to joyfully serve him? It's in his name we pray. Amen. We started uh, in Advent a series in Luke that we're going to carry on for two years. This is going to be a discipleship journey with Jesus over two years. And we as your pastors were excited for it. If you're not familiar with the word disciple, it basically means a student. But a student not who's only learning in a classroom, but an all-of-life student. 
Jesus is the teacher. He's the rabbi who comes and says, follow me, my whole way of life. And John the Baptist, this is Jesus's cousin. He's about six months older than Jesus. He has a job to prepare us for this two-year journey of following Jesus. And he's preparing these people in the River Jordan to follow Jesus in Luke 3, 1 through 20. But as you notice, Luke 3, 1 through 20 is a hard word to stomach. How many of you love conflict? Okay, good. Uh, okay, maybe one or two. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not alone. I, sometimes I need to lean into good conflict, but I think we all kind of uh, stray away from conflict and try to avoid it. Well, here, John the Baptist is confrontational in his pre- preaching. He's talking about fire, judgment. He's saying, he's looking people in their eyeball and saying, repent, you're sons of snakes. And yet, if you look at verse 18, the summary of John's preaching is that John preached the good news. How can this hard preaching be called good news? Well, I wonder if you've ever been lovingly confronted. Maybe you were addicted and your family called a meeting. And you stumbled in upon all your family members waiting for you, looking up at you. And you're like, oh no, they're going to call me out. Maybe you've had poor health choices and you go to your doctor and your doctor says, look, you're going to have to make some changes because if you carry on this way, it's not going to be good. I know personally in high school and college, I've had multiple teachers pull me aside and say, look, Elliot. Yeah, if you carry on, you're going to fail this class. We need to turn things around. So we've all experienced this loving confrontation. And this hard word from John is a good word because through John's preaching, King Jesus confronts us in order to change us. This is the heart of the message. King Jesus is confronting us lovingly to change us powerfully. And as we work through this text, we're going to see that the kingdom is finally coming We're past the birth narratives. Now we're into John's ministry briefly and then Jesus' ministry. And then we see this command to change and then finally the power to change. So let's look at the first few verses here of this kingdom is coming. If you notice, there's a list of seven leaders to start us off. So Tiberius Caesar, so the Roman emperor, all the way down to local religious leaders, uh, Annas and Caiaphas. Why would... Luke, the writer of this book, start there. Why would he start with these seven leaders? For a couple reasons. First, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to this dude named Theophilus. And Theophilus was a Gentile. He's a Roman guy who started following Jesus. And Theophilus, like us, he didn't see Jesus with his own eyes. He just heard about him. And so Luke is writing to Theophilus, this non-Jew, this ear witness, not eyewitness. And he's saying, I'm writing to you so that you can be certain about all the things about Jesus. So this is for our certainty that Jesus isn't a myth. He was living flesh and blood in space and time. But I think Luke gives us more than that with these seven lists of leaders. He's giving us the political and the social atmosphere of Jesus' day. So if I said to you, Americans, Remember the summer of 2020. Some of you are already feeling anxiety, the chaos, 
the upheaval, the murder of George, George Floyd. And that puts you in a certain headspace, an atmosphere. What if I said, remember January of 2021? What a chaotic time. So this is what Luke is doing for us. He's saying, remember this time. This is the political atmosphere that Jesus was stepping into as the new king. You have Tiberius Caesar, who was a violent, wicked emperor. You have Herod, who we'll find out at the end of the passage, he takes his sister-in-law to be his wife, and he commits adultery with his sister-in-law. That's who's ruling in Jesus' day. It's chaos. People are power-hungry. You notice there it says two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was the high priest. Then Rome said, you need to step down. You're too disruptive. And so Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, stepped in. But Annas was behind Caiaphas, kind of pulling all the strings. So even the religious leaders were power-hungry. They're more concerned about their platform, their Instagram presence, than serving the people God gave them. And it's in this political situation that Luke takes our, our view and turns it to the wilderness. John, this rugged looking prophet man. Once again, we see that God is working outside of the limelight. God isn't part of the paparazzi. He's working in forgotten and ordinary places. And here it's God's word comes to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. John is Jesus' cousin, and his whole life is based on preparing people to follow Jesus. His whole life. He wasn't egocentric. He wasn't like, well, I'm trying to get get a little popular, Jesus. Would you just wait a little bit? He's Christ-centered. He's focused on Jesus. And he's a herald. We don't really have heralds in our day. Um, This is someone coming to announce the coming of a king. If you look at verse 4, this was prophesied in Isaiah, and it says, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That line there, prepare the way of the Lord, was an old school way in the Middle East of saying, either a God is coming or a king is coming. Uh, The best I could think of to make this kind of stick with you is uh, Aladdin. Make way for Prince Ali. Okay? That's John the Baptist's ministry. He's coming and preparing people for Jesus. And he's doing this. He's leveling the playing ground. He says, I'm going to make the path straight. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be made low. Everything that's crooked, straight, rough paths, smooth. And everyone, Jew and Gentiles, will see the salvation of God. Imagine if you're driving up I-93 to Franconia Notch. In that part where there's those beautiful mountains and you're driving right into it. And as you're driving, the mountains drop and the valley goes up and it's flat as the Midwest. That would be shocking. That's kind of the imagery we're given as John the Baptist prepares for the ministry of Jesus. He's using geographical language to talk about moral heart preparation. He's saying we don't need to move rocks and mountains. We need to clear the way in our own souls for the coming of the king. As one commentator put it, the highway that clears the way for God's coming is a purified heart. 
And that image of mountains being brought low and valleys being brought up is drawing on Mary's Magnificat when she's saying, when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, the proud are going to be brought low and the lowly are going to be honored. And this is what the king is going to do. If you look at verse three, it says how Jesus prepared people for the coming of this king. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the entrance into Christ's kingdom is repentance. Repentance literally means a change of mind that leads to a change of life. I think we could equate repentance with feeling sorry, maybe our emotions or being sad. But it actually means a change of mind that leads to a change of life. And if we could pull up that quote, it's a bit lengthy, so I have it up here. This is from Eugene Peterson from A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I really recommend that book. But this is a beautiful definition of repentance. Follow along as I read. Repentance is not an emotion. It is not feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. It is deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. And it is deciding that God and Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Repentance is a realization that what God wants from you and what you want from God are not going to be achieved by doing the same old things, thinking the same old thoughts. Hear this. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus Christ and become his pilgrim in the path of peace. So this is how John the Baptist is preparing people for the coming of the king. He's saying, repent change. And this baptism into water is representing that decision that Eugene Peterson talks about, that decision to lay aside the old way and to follow the new way of Jesus. So the coming of the king, this king Jesus, brings with it a command to change. A new king means new rules. And I love how subversive this is. In light of the king of Rome and all these local officials John is saying, no, there's a new king who's coming and we're going to start following him now. And so let's look at this command to change in verses 7 through 14. This command to change. Look at verse 7. John then said to the crowds who came to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? What a welcome committee for a church. So he's saying, you brood of vipers, basically you sons of snakes. Who told you to run from wrath and get baptized? This is a confrontation. He's likely confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Matthew 3, 7, it says, John said, you brood of vipers to the Pharisees and Sadducees. So these would be pastors and the theologians of the day who were self-righteous. But he says, you group of snakes running. Now, remember, John, he's living out in the wilderness. This isn't like wooded wilderness. This is Middle Eastern arid desert. And it was common if there was a brush fire for all the snakes in the brush to slither out. New Hampshire version. We got some flooding in our creek uh, Christmas week. And on our back deck, 
there's a creek and there's a beautiful meadow. And when it started flooding, my son was like, Daddy, look. And all these mice were coming out. They're really cute field mice. Uh, so the water rises and they're all fleeing death. And so these Pharisees, these Sadducees are fleeing. They're coming out to the Jordan because they feel the sense of judgment. He calls them, you sons of snakes or you brood of vipers. What do we do with that? Here, here's one kind of Bible study tip. If you ever hear something weird in the Bible, one way to start understanding it is where else have I heard something like that in the Bible? So sons of snakes, that reminds us of Genesis 3.15. When God tells Satan, who, who took on the form of a snake, he says, I'm going to raise up a savior who's going to destroy you. And all of human history is going to be my children. That's God speaking. My children versus your children. The sons and daughters of God versus the sons and daughters of the serpent. And so what John is doing, he says, you guys are living like the sons of the devil, like Jesus will say in John chapter 8. But this confrontation comes with a chance to change. He's saying, take the plunge in water. Decide today to stop living your own way and to live the way of Jesus. He's calling sons of the snake to change, to shed their skin, to become sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus. I wonder, how do you react to being called out on something? How do you react to being confronted? Well, there's two fundamental responses. Um, Whether you're confronted with kind of year-end review at work or by a family member or your spouse. One is we could just reject it and run, or we could repent and change. And that first response is natural to humans. When someone brings conflict to us, we want to run and hide, just like Adam and Eve ran and hid when God came to them after they sinned. But what John is calling us to do is stay Be seen for what you really are and experience real change. Let's look at these two responses to being called out, especially by Jesus. First, we can grasp for false comfort. Look at verse 8 with me. So he says, uh, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So what he's saying is, okay, I just called you out. Don't start going to false comforts and saying, well, we're Jews. And hey, we're leaders of the Jews. And our father's Abraham. We're all set. We don't need your repentance. We don't need your baptism. We don't need your Jesus. We're all set. We might not be tempted to rely on ancestry, but we could rely on a lot of other things for comfort when Jesus calls us out. We could rely on comparison and just start looking around the room and say, oh, I'm not as bad as them. I'm all set. We could rely on good intentions, vague good intentions, like, yeah, Jesus, I know I did a lot of screwing up, a lot of mess-ups this past year, but I really had a good heart. Here, John is saying, don't rely on your ancestry. Don't rely on these good intentions. Receive this confrontation, and find refuge in Jesus. He is pointing these people to the only refuge that can be found on the day of judgment, and that's in Jesus. 
If you choose this path of running away from Jesus in his confrontation of your sin, you'll choose the path of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And it says later in Luke that they refused to be baptized by John and they refused to follow Jesus. And it led to a cold-hearted life of self-righteousness that ultimately ended in loveless death. That's the first response we could have to being called out. The second response, which John is calling them to, is seek change. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance starts with admitting that we are wrong before God. Not that we do a few things wrong here and there, but my whole life has been on the wrong track, God. You see me for who I am. And then it goes on to making a decision to follow Jesus and whatever he says so that you'll be changed to be like him. We go on verse 10 to see what this repentance looks like. So the crowds come to him. The tax collectors come to him. And these soldiers come to him and they say, what in the world should we do? God sees us for who we really are. Judgment is coming. What should we do? And that's the right question when you hear that the king is coming to knock on your door. What should I do, king? Here, John gives them rock-solid, practical steps to repentance. He's not saying, you know, pray until you don't feel sad anymore. Just go in a closet and, and read your Bible. He's saying, no, I want you to change in the way you live in your relationships. Take God's word, the Bible, and live it out in practical day-to-day life. And here we see that how you treat people shows who rules your life. How you treat people shows who really rules your life. And repentance looks like loving your neighbor. Let's look at this first group. The crowds come to him, asking in verse 10, what then should we do? He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Very practical and basic. He's saying, if you want to turn, if you want to change, start loving your neighbor practically. If you have an extra shirt, give it to someone who has none at all. If you have extra food over the holidays, invite in those who don't or go out to feed those who don't have food. In an age where people were grabbing for power, everyone from the emperor all the way down to the high priest, the pastors of the day, they were grabbing for power. Jesus was saying, get low for service. Then the tax collectors come to them, come to Jesus. They came to be baptized or came to John. They came to be baptized. Then they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. So these tax collectors, mostly Jews who are working for the Roman government, they would take taxes, but then they would take extra to stuff in their own pockets. And notice what John says. He says, he doesn't say find another job. He doesn't say come with me in the wilderness, like let's start a monastery. He says, stay where you are, but live as a changed person. That's not saying that we can't switch jobs or move somewhere else that we feel like God is calling us. But that's, that's a word of fresh hope for us and challenge. That Jesus today is saying to us, stay where you are. He knows all the mess. He knows how hard it is. But live a totally different way. And then these soldiers come up to him. They say, what what should we do? In verse 14, he says, don't take money from anyone by force 
or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Be just and be content. That's what he basically tells the cops of his day. He doesn't say, stop being a cop, find a different job. He just says, be just and be content with your wages. What John is saying to these people, especially to these soldiers is, I don't care if Caesar looks the other way. Your new king, Christ, sees you. He sees you, how you treat people who are less powerful, less fortunate than yourselves. And he's calling you to live in a new way of life. And this was a word for a Theophilus. Remember, the original receiver of this gospel, Theophilus was likely an official in the Roman world, in the Roman government. And what Luke is saying, stay put, but you have a new king and you have to follow his lordship. So this is the command to change. I wonder, have you ever really, really wanted to change, but felt powerless to do it? I for sure have, like this week. Lord, I want to be more self-controlled and patient. I raise my voice again. Lord, I really don't want to eat my feelings at 8 p.m. tonight because I'm sad and I don't want to take it to you. And you just stuff your face with whatever is in the fridge. Or, Lord, I don't want to take that extra drink tonight. Or I want to take a break because I feel like I'm, I'm being stuck to the bottle. And you fall back into it. Well, you're not alone. There's one extensive uh, study done on New Year's Eve resolutions, and 91% of New Year's Eve resolutions fail. And here's the fun part. There's actually a specific day in January that the majority of people drop their resolution, and I have no idea why. It's called quitting day. There's probably psychology there, but it's January 19th. So we'll see you then. Misery is company. But 91% of us If we make a resolution, we will not achieve it. And so good intentions aren't enough. We could want to change. We could want to follow Jesus in our place with all our heart and not have the power. And that's the beauty of the good news. Because Jesus doesn't only say change. He says, I'm here to help you. So let's turn to the final verses. The power to change. The power to change. Now people were, let's look at verse 15. Now people were waiting expectantly and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I'm not un- I am not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's ministry was pretty impressive that people around the Jordan were starting to whisper and say, is he the Messiah? Is he the Messiah that we've been waiting for for 400 years? And John kind of clears the air on that. And he points to his cousin and his king, Jesus. And he says, the Messiah is greater. He says, I can't even untie the king's sandals after a long day. Now hear this. That task was below Jewish servants. They said, I won't even stoop so low as to untie my master's sandals. That's like the lowest of the low of jobs. And John is saying, I can't even do that. So he says, I'm not the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is strong. 
He is the mighty God prophesied of Isaiah 9. He's the one who we'll see in the gospel of Luke has power to heal disease, to command creation, to break addiction, to free prisoners and to defeat death. John points to another authority. He's not egocentric. He's Christ centric and he's happy about it. He is happy to spend his life pointing others to people. And John is kind of a hero for us pastors because we have no authority in and of ourselves as your pastors at River of Grace. We happily point to the king on the throne, Jesus, who has all authority and power. We have no power to actually work change in your life. We simply point to the one who can change you. So this Messiah who's coming is stronger than John. He has a better baptism. He's bringing the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit who breathes life into all things. Who empowers people to change. Who makes all things new. And this Messiah is coming with fire. Now this fire is different than the fire mentioned before. Because he's saying he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire in a positive sense. Now earlier he's talking about the fire of judgment. He's saying you sons of snakes. If you don't run from this wrath. If you don't change and bear fruit with repentance. You're going to have the fire. You're going to receive the fire of judgment. But he's saying here, for people who receive the Messiah, you're going to receive a baptism of Holy Spirit and a fire, which kind of hints towards Pentecost. But this fire isn't a condemning fire. It's a refining fire. A lot of people say when gold that has some blemishes needs those blemishes out, they'll put it through hot fire to get rid of those blemishes and impurities to make it refined. And I've never seen that happen, so that's hard for me to imagine. But I have been in a sauna. Have you been in a sauna before? Okay, bless the Lord. If you haven't yet, New Year's resolution, it's great. But if you go in a sauna, you put the water on, and that first few minutes is really uncomfortable. You feel a tingling in your skin. You're trying to get some air in your lungs, and it's burning your lungs. And then finally, the sweat breaks through. And I've heard that saunas are great to relax the body, and they release toxins through your skin. This is the baptism of fire that Jesus has for all who are willing to follow him. He says, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, it's going to hurt, but I am refining you. I am getting rid of those sins, the unbelief, as you follow me through this fire of sanctification. And the reason he can do that for sons and daughters of the snake is because Jesus ended his earthly ministry by going to the cross for us. If you place your faith in Jesus, God doesn't just turn a blind eye to all the rebellion you've had against him. He places the punishment for that rebellion on his son, his son Jesus, who willingly went to the cross to take the fires of judgment to give you the fires of loving sanctification and change. So as we look at our New Year's resolutions, this passage comes along and gives us a biblical understanding of change. We shouldn't look at the 91% and just say, well, we shouldn't try at all. We shouldn't just poo-poo people who have effort and desire and who want to try hard things. But John's ministry, Jesus' ministry, kind of refocuses our resolutions And it makes us more reliant on him. 
Notice that all of the change that John lists out was other-centered. It was relational, not just individual. Now, it's fine to want to work out more in the new year, to eat healthy, whatever that may mean, or to do this or that adventure. That's good and fine. But why don't we resolve to love our actual neighbors in tangible ways by giving them food, by thinning out the wardrobe and giving some clothes out? And I think this is a beautiful call for our community groups here in Concord and Ware and Bedford and all over. Let's brainstorm as community groups. How can we follow Jesus in change and no longer living selfishly, but living selflessly like our king? How can we go against the spirit of the age of politicians and some pastors who want to just bring praise and attention and grab power for themselves? And how can we push against that and get low and serve our communities? So this whole section ends with a reminder of judgment. This wheat with the shell of chaff on it, he's saying when Jesus comes, he's going to take that shovel for getting the wheat. He's going to throw up the wheat in there. The chaff is going to be blown away. All who don't bow the knee to King Jesus, all who refuse to change, and it's going to be burned up forever. But he says that wheat is going to be gathered in. This section ends in verse 19. With kind of an aside, but this is the end of John the Baptist's ministry. It says that when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. This is a reminder for us as we embark on this journey to follow Jesus as his disciples, that God's kingdom is a disruptive kingdom. Christ's kingdom clashes with the kingdom of this world. And it will clash with the kingdom of your own little world as well. If following Jesus seems hard, then you're probably doing something right. I want to end with this beautiful quote, and I apologize, I don't have it up here, but this is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, like John the Baptist, gave up his life for King Jesus in Nazi Germany. And he talks about this road of discipleship. As we embark on this two years of following Jesus, on looking at what it looks like to follow him, hear this. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end of an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. But it meets us. The cross meets us at the beginning of communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. If you choose to die to yourself, you will find abundant life in Jesus as we follow him. King Jesus lovingly confronts us in order to powerfully change us.